This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's a brand new week. It's the Monday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, hoping, praying you're having a really, really great day. This is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about things that are going on in your life, questions about things that are going on in our world for sure. Whatever is on your heart, all you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app to send them in. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer who will get your question uh, or your call to us as soon as possible. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Hey, because it's Monday, we're back with our Monday night Bible studies for men and women. Pastor Ken uh, will be teaching the men. He is in the book of Acts, I think in chapter 7, one of the truly great chapters and commentaries on the Old Testament in the New Testament. Uh, So uh, that's tonight at 7 o'clock. And of course, Paula will be teaching the ladies tonight. And I think what she's got, I'm not exactly sure, um, but I think she's got a real word of exhortation uh, for all of you. And uh, I pray you will be blessed. That is at 7 o'clock. And you can watch the ladies, Paula's teaching, at uh, uh, calvarysa.com as it will be live streamed as well. Uh, On a personal note, just before I I move on um, and get to some questions, uh, I want to thank God for protecting our um, staff member, John, who was having surgery today. Uh, Word is that you're up and moving around a little bit already and doing well. The surgery went great, and we have been praying for you all day and can't wait for you to get back and take your spot here at the church. We have been blessed with so many faithful people here over the years. And uh, John, if you're able to listen today, God bless you. And we're just thrilled for you. Okay, let's get to some questions. And then we'll, as we wait for your phone calls, our first question is from our mobile app from Kirby. And this is a question two of them, actually, uh, that I think come from my Bible study yesterday in Second Timothy chapter two. Um, she said, first of all, do you think Timothy ever married? Uh, Kirby, we don't know for sure. I don't think so. There's no record of it. Uh, and Timothy was such an important figure in the early church that there would have been, I think, um, um, historical information that would have indicated, but there's never anything uh, at all. I think uh, Timothy remained unmarried, committed to the Lord, and served faithfully for a very, very long time. But these are questions that we really can't know the answers for sure for, simply because we're not given the information. Uh, Her second question is, what does pursue peace in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 really look like? Uh, I love this question, Kirby, because um, yesterday we were told to, to flee from the evil desires of youth, 
Timothy, of course, was a young man, and um, he had all the same temptations and the same evil desires that we all have. He wasn't some super faith hero, um, um, but but he ran from them. He did what the Apostle Paul told him to. And then he said, and here's the alternative. We can, we can run away from the bad stuff, but here's the good stuff that you run into. And the things that we talked about yesterday were righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So um, our the study yesterday talked about those things, but they all kind of go together and they step one on the other. Now, when we are pursuing peace, we're pursuing the peace of God in our lives. So Kirby, it's not peace with God. We've already made peace with God by being born again, by giving our heart to Jesus Christ. But pursuing the peace of God is something entirely different. And the reason I love this question so much at this particular time is because our world is so crazy that it seems like peace can't be found. People are afraid. There's all kinds of different sets of information that are coming out. Everybody seems to have a, an agenda or or they're interpreting things according to their own personal biases. And it's hard to have peace. And the way we have peace is, and I'm going to go backwards here, we've got to pursue righteousness, right standing with God every day. We've got to pursue faith. We've got to walk by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then we pursue love because Jesus in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory is love. And then when we're doing those things, then, Kirby, we're going to walk in the peace of God. It doesn't mean that we won't be afraid. It doesn't mean that all of our problems are going to seemingly go away. But here's what it means for us. It means that when we realize that there's a lack of peace, we can lean on the one who promised this peace. There's something else about this peace that I want you to think about. This is a peace, according to Paul writing to the church at Philippi, that often passes or surpasses understanding. And I think, Kirby, a lot of the times our lack of peace is because we don't understand something and it sort of freaks us out. So we have the availability of peace of God every single day. Again, that doesn't mean that we're not going to have any issues. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be fearful at times. It just means that there's going to be this overriding peace every day that says, Lord, I trust you. And that's really what a walk by faith is all about. One final thought on this, Kirby, and then we'll go on to other questions. The reason this is so important, this letter that I'm teaching now uh, on Sundays, is because it's the last communication of the Apostle Paul ever. He knew he was going to die. It's less than 30 days before he is going to have his head cut off by the executioner under Caesar Nero's orders. Uh, And he's telling his son in the faith, the one he loves, this is how you carry on. And because of the weight of these last words, we have to understand that walking by faith in these troubled times, and make no mistake, we're living in really troubled times, walking by faith requires the fullness of God's Spirit in us and upon us, and then running through us peace of God. It's a wonderful gift that the Lord has given. Thank you very, very much for the question. Let's go to my next question. It is an anonymous one. Uh, Is my husband watching pornography grounds for divorce as adultery? Anonymous, it is not. Now, adultery, the, the act of adultery is a violation of marriage vows. Now, I am not minimizing the use of pornography at all. Anybody who's ever come to this church understands how often I speak about the need for this. Pornography, sadly, is one of the prevailing sins in the New Testament church. It's so readily available and so few of us are really close to Jesus that we can resist that temptation. And make no mistake, it is a temptation for, for everyone, especially men, But that's not what Jesus meant when he said anybody looks at a woman with lust is guilty of adultery. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is raising the stakes for heaven. He's saying, look, here's the letter of the law, but you want to get to heaven on your own without me, then we have to also fulfill the spirit of the law. And that's why he continues raising the stakes. It's not a standard, okay, my husband looks at porn so I can divorce him, he's an adulterer. However, as horrible as 
pornography is, as much damage as it does to the wife in a marriage, it does not rise to the same level as physical adultery. It's bad. It's something that you and your husband need to go to church and have counseling for. But it's something that we've really got to understand causes pain and difficulty. Guys, you're supposed to love your wives the way Christ loved the church, giving yourself up for So this is just something that you can't do. But it's not anonymous grounds for divorce. Pray for your husband. Talk with him about what it does to you. Share how brokenhearted you are every time you discover that he's been using it. And then let the Lord deal with his heart. For the men in this audience who are involved in pornography... You've taken a vow before God that you're going to love your wife the way Christ loved the church, that you're going to put her needs ahead of your own, that you would honor her and cherish her. And instead, what you're doing by looking at pornography is giving the devil an opening to destroy her. You see, she's going to wonder every time you're physically having sex who it is that you're thinking about. She's going to be thinking about the images in your mind and how likely she will never measure up. And the devil is going to speak to her and say, well, you know, if you were prettier, if you were, 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 were thinner, or if you were more adventurous sexually, well, then maybe your husband wouldn't have to do those things. Now, remember, those are lies from the devil. But nonetheless... Their lies your wife is going to believe because you've put her in a position where instead of protecting her, you're opening the door for the devil to destroy her. How would you ever explain that to Jesus? Now, looking at pornography is not the worst sin. God's not shocked when you do it. But it will destroy the woman you promised God to cherish. He gave you stewardship over her. And you need to take those vows that you made seriously. I hope that makes sense to you, Anonymous, in the sense that God's heart breaks with you and for you. And this is a time where your strength has to come from Him, Jesus, not your husband. You keep praying for Him. But you cast your burdens, you cast your cares upon Jesus. I hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question from James. Pastor Ron, I saw a YouTube video about revival going on in California churches. I thought the churches were being closed there. I don't know the YouTube video that you're looking uh, at, James. I tried to find it on YouTube today and didn't find anything. Now, there is a lot of talk about a possible revival in California as a result of the, the, the many, many churches now that are defying um, state and local ordinances against meeting and singing. I just uh, had my producer tell me as we came in uh, for the program today that there was a, uh, a church in California that was fined a, a pretty hefty fine uh, for singing in church. My goodness. If you have any doubt about the devil's hand in all of this, he, he, our, our battle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of the air, and in this case, the enemy himself. Imagine being told you couldn't worship God in song. Imagine the government trying to overstep to keep you from worshiping Jesus. And I applaud, James, those California churches that are defying. I would be defying those state orders myself if I was in California. Thank God we have a governor and an attorney general uh, here, the ultimate authorities in the state of Texas, both of whom are born-again believers. But you know, when God sees men and women taking a stand for him, 
none of us should be surprised that he's going to stand for them. You know, James, the last real revival that the, the world had was uh, a revival that began in California, uh, the Jesus People Movement, which is really where Calvary Chapel was born. Or Calvary Chapel was at least the vanguard of that. And because of that, um, we all think California is so far gone, they're trying to fight churches. Well, you see, it's in times of persecution like this. And, and I don't want to minimize persecution. This isn't like Coptic Christians are being persecuted in some parts of the world or, or Christian converts uh, from, from um, Muslim countries. Uh, they're really being persecuted. But this kind of persecution, when we stand for him, Boy, God's Spirit is really going to move. And so I don't think there is a revival going on right now in California churches, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if there was. James, one more piece of news that I just got this morning when I came in. Uh, John MacArthur's church, who is sort of uh, at the, 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 the peak of, of this movement in California to defy um, state and local ordinances, uh, he was served today with a, a uh, 30-day termination notice of, of uh, leasing uh, parking lots uh, all around his church. He's got a church where uh, in each service there's probably four or 5,000 people there, uh, and he's got multiple services. And uh, if you've ever seen parking in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, you know it's at a premium. Well, he's been leasing these three parking lots for 45 years, since 1975. And because the state, the city, and now the county, he's been leasing it from the county, at a pretty penny, by the way, um, for all these years, uh, because they have sort of targeted him and done everything they can to make his life miserable. They've lost in court over and over and over. They're going to lose again, uh, I I believe, when this goes to court. But he was served with a 30-day termination of lease rights on the parking lots. It's like people have to walk to church or take the bus to church or something. Believe me, people are going to come. It's this kind of persecution that I think is going to foment a potential revival in these last days. So, James, keep the California churches and pastors in your prayers. There are um, many, many, many thousands at this point um, in the whole state who are are actively defying what is an abusive and misdirected order designed for one reason, one reason only, to shut the doors of the churches of Jesus Christ. That's never going to happen. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we who aren't there, we can fight with them and support them through our prayers continually. So I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls or questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is an anonymous question. Is physical and verbal abuse grounds for leaving my husband? Um, anonymous, yes and no. Physical abuse physical abuse is certainly grounds. And, and, and I would go one step beyond that. If your husband is physically abusing you, then you need to leave. You need to leave now, not tomorrow, not the next day. You need to leave now. Find a place safe. Uh, don't tell your husband where you are and get out of the house now. One of the painful things that I experience over the years here as a pastor is women who are being physically abused who will not leave the abuse. And in some cases, they get hurt later. Uh, you're in a very dangerous situation. So physical abuse violates the marriage covenant, and God does not want you to live in that environment. Be safe. Get out now. If you can't do it, you don't know how, go to your church, go to your pastor, and I promise you they will help you. But you need to get out. Verbal abuse. Unfortunately, being a jerk is not grounds for divorce. So um, I think sometimes we just have to toughen up. That doesn't mean that we take take the constant barrage of verbal abuse, but we avoid the confrontation if at all possible. Pray for your husband if he is verbally abusive. Pray for him and let him 
be forced to deal with the Lord. God will come to your defense, but being a jerk is not grounds for divorce. So hang in there. If the, the abuse is verbal, uh, if the abuse is physical, get out. Get out now. Don't hesitate and don't wait. Patrick says, why will Christians face judgment? Well, Patrick, the only judgment that we're going to face is the Bema Seat of Christ, and that's judgment for um, receiving and losing rewards. Now, Ephesians 2.10, which I have the privilege of teaching uh, this coming Friday night, says that we're God's poema, his work of art, his expression of creativity, and we're being prepared for work that God has prepared for us. And so that work and how we do it, the, 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 the heart, the motive with which we do it, is going to be judged. But it's not a judgment for salvation at all. It's simply a judgment for rewards. For example, if there's something that God wanted me to do, and for some reason, either spiritual laziness or fear or lack of faith, I didn't do it. Well, the work is still going to get done. God's going to just find somebody else who gets to do it. That person who does it instead of me is going to receive the reward that God intended for me. And that's the judgment. He says every work, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, every work will be tested. What we did, why we did it, how we did it, were we being obedient? Were we honoring the Lord? Was our motive to advance the cause of Christ? Or was our motive maybe a little more selfish? Those works are all going to be tested. And some are going to be what Paul calls precious stones, gold and silver works. And others are going to be wood, hay, and stubble works. The wood, hay, and stubble, of course, is going to get burned up in the test of fire. While the precious stones works are going to survive and uh, will lead to Jesus handing us crowns of righteousness, crowns of glory. So we will face judgment, but not for salvation. Only unbelievers, Patrick, will face judgment for their sins. Every knee will bow, Philippians says, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, his Father and our Father. But that's a judgment for salvation, the judgment for works that Christians are going to stand before the Lord and, and encounter um, have nothing whatsoever to do with salvation at all. It is simply a judgment of the quality of our works. Rob has a question. Why did Jesus wait four days to go to Lazarus? Well, Rob, um, Lazarus's sister um, asked the same question. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But Jesus waited four days. There's two reasons. One, very practical, and the other, that God would be glorified. The practical reason is because Jews believe that the spirit of a, of a man who died hovered around him for three days, and it was possible to be resurrected um, if, if uh, it was less than, or three days or less. So Jesus waited until there was no human response, no human answer. And when he heard that he was dead, four days, he then takes off and he arrives at the tomb. Now, he waited four days, secondly, because he knew that every excuse would be stripped away. Everybody would see and, and, and be forced to believe this Lazarus who was dead. It wasn't three days ago. It was four days ago. The spirit is gone. That's why Jesus walked into the mouth of that family tomb. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were, were fairly well-to-do, if not very well-to-do. And so this expensive family tomb, it would have been fairly lavish. Jesus walked up, said, roll away the stone. And Martha said, by now he stinketh, O God. And Jesus said, roll away the stone. He walked in and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Had he not said Lazarus, all of the people buried in that family tomb would have come forward. But Jesus was demonstrating his mastery over the spirit realm. And imagine what it was like when Lazarus, bound by grave clothes, he would have been wrapped like we, we would understand a mummy to be wrapped. And Lazarus coming forth, sort of having to hop to the, to the mouth of the tomb where he would see Jesus. 
And Jesus looked at him and he said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And of course, we know what the result was. Imagine what the rest of Lazarus's life was like. Do you think Lazarus was afraid of dying? Can you imagine what it would have been like if the state of California would have come to Lazarus and said, you can't worship God. He'd said, huh, I'm going to worry about the rules of man. He'd already seen the glory of God. In all probability, couldn't wait to get back to see the glory of God. And Lazarus, of course, we know from our New Testament, became a powerful tool to win others to Christ uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection. So that's why he waited four days, Rob. Well, the phones have been quiet, and we love your calls. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. Remember, we'd love your calls and questions. 340-9585 is our number. Let's take a phone call from Ray on line one. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Thanks for taking my call on this my pleasure, last Ray. day of the month. <laughs> Boy, time flies, doesn't it? Boy, it sure does. Going, My question is, I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around, well, not just this, but that's uh, <laughs> beside <laughs> the point. <laughs> um, you, you, were, you were talking about the judgment um as far as, you know, if, if we didn't get a crown or we did get a, you know, um, and uh, to use, use some of your way of putting it, uh, ones who find themselves in the smoking section in heaven, I suppose, uh, where I, I don't quite get where we when 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 we're out of this physical body <clears throat> we're instantly in the presence and what how do, how do we proceed or perceive the the um I don't know exactly how to put this but uh the the since since we would be out of time and space so to speak where, where, how does this jog with, with, uh, I, I know I can't understand it, but perhaps you, you have a better grasp of it, I'm, I'm sure, than I do, as far as temporally speaking, that we're, we're judged, and then does, does that bring upon us also a sense of humility or humiliation or, you know, since there's no tears, and I, I just can't quite grasp the whole concept. And is that is that muddled enough? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's I think it's clear enough, right? I think I know where you're where you're going. So I'll be happy to answer that question. You know, and, and let me let me sort of lay a foundation. You know, a lot of times I've heard people say to me, Christians now, say, "Well, as long as I get to heaven, that's all that matters." And I think we have to have a bigger wider, holier view of heaven than that. It is true, heaven is going to be great for everybody. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more grieving. All of that is true. But when we, and, and this is it, it's almost impossible to, to convey what it's going to be like at that moment. When we look at those scars that were for us, 
I almost really picture it as Jesus shows me his hands, got my name on that scar. And when I find out that I wasn't faithful, there's going to be a lot of pain. Now, the Bible says Jesus is going to wipe away the tears, but make no mistake, they're going to be tears. I think in that moment we realize that what we did on earth really, really mattered. That the cavalier approach that we had, you know, I just care about getting to heaven, that's all. And I, I think we're going to really, truly regret at the Bama seat that we took the easy way out, at least an earthly easy way out, and that instead of honoring the sacrifice Jesus made for us, we sort of trampled on it. And when we see the pain in his face when he has to give a reward that was intended for us to somebody else, I think that's going to be overwhelming. Now again, Jesus is going to wipe away the tears. But I think there's a different level to this. I believe with all of my heart that the, the Jesus' parables teaches that that our ability to... I'm searching for the right word. Our ability to enjoy, that's really not the right word, um, to enjoy heaven, our intimacy with Jesus will be in large part determined by our faithfulness here. And and I don't mean to be cavalier when I say the smoking section, 1 Corinthians 3 says that the, the wood, hay, and stubble works are going to be burned up and one that will, will be saved but as one escaping through the fire. So that's what I mean by the smoking section. There's no second-class citizens in heaven. But it's Jesus telling us that what we do here really matters. And the idea that we would have a relationship with Jesus Christ and then not pursue honoring God with our lives here is unthinkable. At least to me, it's unthinkable. You know, the man who uh, decides, well, God's forgive me so I can, uh, I can keep looking at pornography, or God will forgive me so I can keep drinking, or, well, I know God will forgive me, so I don't have to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. Those kind of things, there's not going to be any excuse for those. And I think at that Bema seat judgment, our secrets, our hearts, our souls are going to be laid bare. We're going to be outside of time and space. And Jesus will give some reward to everybody. We're going to both receive and lose rewards. But, but Jesus is going to look at us and he's going to say, enter into the joy and peace of your Lord. And as he wipes away the tears, then we're going to be able to understand not only what we missed out on on earth, but the glory that awaits us. Now, because we live in time and space, we have a, a pretty clear version, or I'm sorry, a pretty clear vision of punishment and reward um, but 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 it's not so cut and dried when we go in the presence of the Lord. I think all the punishment we'll need is understanding that we squandered our life. Now, for everybody who's out there thinking, well, well, I've already squandered so much of it. You see, all of those things now can be as far from you as east is from west. All you have to do is repent. That means stop taking Jesus for granted and give him your whole life for the life of me. I can never understand why someone could be content just getting to heaven and living their life, causing pain to others and living in personal pain themselves. Because when we're being disobedient to the Lord, there's going to be pain in our lives. We're going to be miserable people. And God has so much more for us. So, Ray, I think that's really an important question you ask. And usually... Your questions, once you get them figured out, are. So thank you very, very much for that. Here is a question from our email inbox. Oh, I think i got another call coming in, so I'll wait there. Let's go to uh, Ron from Mason County. Ron, good to hear from you again. You're on the air. I always enjoy your show. Just to thank pick you, Ron. Up where, you, where you're with uh, on the last caller here. The idea of some people wearing crowns and others not wearing crowns, I'm like your last caller, doesn't quite fit. Uh, Mm -hmm. 
you know, the idea that there's a little bit of envy there. I get the regret, but there shouldn't be guilt and shame in heaven. Uh, and then tie that to Revelation where the elders throw their crowns at Jesus' feet, which I think signifies giving him all of the glory. But mm-hmm. how do we, are there memories there that we didn't do as much as we should? Or do we feel so much happiness for the people that did do the things they wanted to that it takes all of the bad or negative thoughts away? Yeah. You know, um, Ron, I, I, I think the answer to your question, both questions, is yes. Uh, I, I think w- one of the things we have to understand, and I'm, I'm grateful you use the word envy, because I meant to mention that in my response to Ray. R- remember, envy is flesh. And when we stand before Jesus, we're not going to be flesh. So there's no possibility of envy. There's no possibility of jealousy. There's no competition. Nothing like that. And when I say some people uh, will will receive crowns or lose rewards, it doesn't mean that some people are going to have big crowns physically, but the crowns uh, are the rewards that we're going to throw at the feet of Jesus, which is exactly as you said, is making sure that, that God gets all of the glory for the things that we did. But we're all going to stand before him individually as well. Now, we all get the victor's crown. When we get to heaven, by virtue of, of, of the victor's crown, we're going to have that reward. Jesus is going to say, well done, here's your victor's crown. But, but there are other crowns, crowns of righteousness, crowns of glory. Um, and, and these are the things that uh, are going to be determined by the, the, the examination of our works by fire, again from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I think when we stand before him individually, as I said a moment ago, and we don't receive a reward that was intended for us by the Lord, there's going to be profound sadness. It's not a sadness that's going to last for eternity. But but when we stand before him and we see how personal his sacrifice was and then how impersonally we treated him, then that's going to be profoundly sad. At the same time, because we're going to be like Jesus, all of our flesh is going to be gone. When somebody receives all kinds of crowns, well, I think we're going to be so thrilled that that man or that woman brought glory to God that we're going to rejoice in that as well. And it won't be, well, bummer, I wish that was me. It's not going to be like that at all in heaven. So there's going to be this profound sadness, but there's going to be overwhelming joy. And the good news is the overwhelming joy is going to last forever and ever and ever. Now, we don't get much detail about these things. There's going to be a lot of secrets that are revealed to us when we get there. But suffice to say that there will be a price to pay this profound sadness I'm talking about, when we realize that we had opportunities to bring God glory and didn't. Now, here's the good thing, and I want to repeat this. I said it to Ray Ron. I'm going to say it uh, in response to your call as well. Um, No Christian today has to worry about that. Because all you have to do is say, Jesus, forgive me. We know if we've taken the Lord's gift for granted. We know if we've been unfaithful. We know if we're dabbling in deliberate sin. We know all those things. We know if God's asked us to give or if God's asked us to sacrifice or if God's asked us to serve and we've sort of taken the easy way out and not done it. We know those things now. All you have to do is say, Jesus, after everything you've done for me, I'm so sorry that I haven't given you all of me. You gave everything for me. I've withheld a whole bunch from you. And I'm sorry, and I don't want to do it anymore. And then all of those things, Ron, are wiped away. And when you stand before Jesus, he will look at you and he will say, well done. And the good news is that we get a new start every single day. And I think so uh, much of the time, we Christians get so used to slacking, we get so used to being lukewarm that we sort of put it away in our memory bank, the idea that we really have anything at all to repent for. Read the letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3. I know your works, I know that you think you're okay. 
You say you are rich and you have need of nothing, but I say you're poor, pitiful, wretched, blind, and naked. And he says, you lukewarm Christians, I wish you were either hot or cold, at least that way it's honest. But you lukewarm Christians, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And I think we live in a time, Ron, where the United States of America, the church in the United States of America, is best represented by that letter to the church uh, of Laodicea. And I think there's going to be a whole bunch of people when they get to heaven, and Jesus is going to look at us like, why were you ashamed of me? I think of pastors, and I talked about this in a study, not this week, but last week. Pastors who water down his word because they're more interested in filling seats and making people feel good than they are proclaiming the the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching Christians how to walk with Christ. And I think when Jesus looks at them and he opens the books and he says, why were you ashamed of my word? I entrusted this glorious gospel to you. I gave you my Bible with everything that people need. I entrusted people I loved to you. And instead of them tell, instead of you telling them what I told you to tell them, you changed my message. You talk about profound sadness, profound shame. Again, Jesus is going to wipe away the tears. But make no mistake, we are going to give an account of our ministries, of our lives here on earth. And it's not going to be good enough for any of us just to say, well, at least I made it to heaven. So the sadness won't last forever. Eventually, he's going to give us all brain swipes. The memories of all the bad things are going to go away. But at that moment, that profound moment, where we realize that, Lord, you gave everything for me and I gave you almost nothing. I can't even begin to explain how difficult that's going to be. Thank you, Ron. Always good to hear from you. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. One more thought on on this whole idea of rewards. Um, this is the kind of thing, and I think this is why Paul wrote it to the church at Corinth, a carnal church, and he was warning them, this is what's going to happen to you. I stand in the pulpit every week And in love and exhortation, I warn the people here at Calvary Chapel that you don't want to get to heaven and and find out that you took the easy way out. Why aren't we sharing Jesus with people that we come into contact with, our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers? Why aren't we asking God every day for divine appointments? Jesus, I know I'm going to run into somebody today who needs to hear about you. Open my eyes spiritually so that I can see that man or that woman. Why aren't we doing that? Why when somebody that we care about takes God's name in vain, why don't we stand up for him? Why sometimes when we make a commitment to serve at church, And then we sort of back out of that commitment because, well, it's too hard or I'm too tired or there's a million reasons people give. We're going to lose rewards for those kind of things. So it's really something that we need to think about. Here is a question from another anonymous question. He says, or she says, there's a small war brewing in our home over the way my daughter dresses. I think she dresses too revealing, but her mother, this is a male, but her mother says, all the kids dress this way, can you help? Um, Anonymous, you are the spiritual head of the household. Now I'm going to tell you a couple of things that I know are not going on in your home because there's this disagreement between you and and her mother, your, your wife. I can pretty well guess with fair certainty that you're not reading the Bible together with your wife. You're not talking about these issues in depth. You haven't made a commitment as a married couple to follow Jesus, to stand with him and for him in your home, to stand for righteousness. In other words, you're not in unity in your own home. And the enemy is going to take advantage of that. Your daughter 
Your kids are going to take advantage of that. So here's the thing that you need to do. You need to sit down with your Bibles open. And this needs to be something you do on a daily basis. But these are the things. God will knit your heart together. You and your wife, he'll knit your heart together, not in just issues like this, but just knit your heart together as one flesh serving the Lord. But he'll do it through his word. And I would urge you to sit down with your wife and say, you know what, we need to start reading together. We need to do it on a daily basis. I'm not talking about hours of this. But just let the Lord knit your hearts together as you come together in his living and active word. You read a chapter, let her reread the chapter to you, and then talk about it. That's the wonderful blessing of our Bibles. They're supernatural, and God will take these natural, fleshy disagreements and divisions and he'll unite your hearts in a way that you, you, you're not even aware it's happening. And you not only walk together, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so, Amos 3.3? 3, 3. But, but your wife will start respecting you as the spiritual head of the household. You'll love your wife the way Christ loved the church because that's what you're told to do. So you've got to be proactive in this. Now, with the immediate problem, this is just one of those times, time for family meeting. You need to tell your wife and your daughter that you serve Jesus Christ. And the biblical standard for dress for women is modest dress. And that you believe her dressing is immodest and you're no longer going to permit it. Make sure your daughter knows that you really love her. You're protecting her. Now, obviously, your term was a small war. Uh, the enemy's going to try to make this small war a big war. So you've got to be ready for it. You've got to stand your ground. But you and your wife have got to be in agreement on this. Because unless and until you are, the enemy's going to destroy The other thing I can tell you about your home is that there's very little family devotion time, very little family prayer time, and in all likelihood, very little prayer time together with you and your wife. Again, these aren't things... I realize we live busy lives. You get up in the morning, but, but isn't it worth it to avoid small wars in your home? Isn't it worth it to get up an hour earlier if that's what you have to do? If you'll do that, I promise you God will move. If your desire is to honor God, if your wife's desire is to honor God, I promise you he will bring that together. If your desire is to honor the Lord and her desire is is not to honor the Lord, well then I promise you he'll change her heart as you spend time together in the Word. The only other thing I'd say about this anonymous is that you need to be sure that you're not being too draconian. You need to be sure that you can explain this using the word to your daughter. And she needs to really be able to trust that you love her. So this is a house that needs to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, we're at the end of the program, I think. Do I have a call? No? Okay, so I've got one more question. I can do it. Oh, yes, here's an email question from Richard. Um, what are your thoughts on the back-and-forth comments by a group of faith leaders who are backing Joe Biden for president, saying that our nation needs moral clarity to restore the soul of the nation, and an apparent counter by Pastor Robert Jeffress, who says only evangelicals who sold their soul to the devil will vote for presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. I understand that the group of faith leaders is ecumenical, Christian, Jewish, Sikh, and Muslim, among others. Uh, Let me start at the end. The ecumenical part indicates where their heart is coming from. 
Now, I don't want to make this a political thing. Robert Jeffress, who I'm sure is a nice man, I've actually met him. Um, uh, I think his ministry is so out of balance, and I think he's so blind to political issues that um, he's long ago uh, left the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, and, and his ministry has become focused on uh, on a political orientation. So I'm not a fan of his ministry at all. He's a believer. Believe me, I'm not questioning his salvation. But his focus is completely wrong. Now, having said that, for anybody to say that our nation needs moral clarity, and so I'm going to vote for a man who is going to not only continue the slaughter of unborn children, but is going to continue to lead people to hell on a daily basis by encouraging and affirming um, same-sex relationships, uh, by affirming and 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 uh, um, transgender changes. Those who, who uh, I mean, there's no moral clarity. Now, I understand their position. Donald Trump is not a moral man. We want Donald Trump to get saved. But certainly, they can't say that Joe Biden has ever stood for moral clarity. So that is a progressive, a liberal left agenda that they're pandering to, and it's going to cause people... Um, a lot of trouble. So I, I don't know how any Christian could vote for an abortion supporter, a gay marriage supporter. That's not moral clarity. That's moral ruination. Thank you, Richard. Hey, we've run out of time today. This is the word to stand up for life. Remember, Paula will be teaching the ladies tonight at 7. Pastor Ken, the men in a great chapter, Acts chapter 7. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh,